Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, Glenn Gorick, a mate of mine, has been trying to interview me to tell my story from growing up and then into my sports and into being a lifeguard. So I've finally given in to him and he interviews me. So I hope you all can sit back and enjoy. It was uh, such a intense and long interview we decided to split it in two. So sit back and listen to part one. Hello to everyone listening today and welcome to Life's a Beach podcast. Things are a little different today at the Beach Shack as we know it. My name is Glenn Gorick. Yes, today's a role reversal. The Life's a Beach podcast is going to be about our favourite Australian lifeguard, and I'll do my very best to peel back some of those very thick layers that are part of one of Australia's most loved and well-known lifeguards. Welcome, Hoppo. How things going, mate? Uh, thanks, Goro, mate. It's a pleasure to be here and have you in the beach shack. That's it, mate. Well, I've moved in, mate. I've actually put my clothes in the cupboards. I've made a coffee and I'm sitting back on the lounge and I'm warming to this place, mate. I think I might just stay here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great place to be. It's a wonderful place. I've got to clarify something, though. Um, I've been chasing you on this for about a year and uh, trying to twist your arm. I've held you down on Bondi Beach. I've actually locked you in the in the bathroom at uh, the lifeguard headquarters there on Bondi, and I've had no luck. But finally, I've tied you down and uh, convinced you that we need to do a podcast on on you, mate, because there's so much we need to know more about you and your life. And I think it would be fitting if we could, you know, drill down on a few things with you and have a bit of fun in the beach shack, mate. Yeah, mate, it's... Uh... It's a pleasure. It did take a while to get me in. Uh, as you know, I don't like uh, yeah, doing too much talking about myself. But, uh, yeah, mate, you did uh, finally get me, so it should be good. No, it's, mate, absolute honour. And obviously, you know, there's a, there is a lot to the complex hoppo, not only in growing up but also all the things you've achieved. And, look, the internet is just littered with it, mate. But, um I know you personally. We've had a lot of fun together on and off the field, as they say. And uh, I'm going to open you right up, take you right back to your childhood, and we'll start right where it all began, and that is in Bronte on the 12th of November, 1968. Now, that makes you a Gen Xer. So that's a pretty important keynote here. I won't go into your star sign, but I'll I'll go into the Gen X because being a boomer, we set it all up for you Gen Xers to have have a great life and a lot of fun and... You guys have just rewritten the books on adrenaline and adrenaline junkies. <laughs> oh, mate, it's, uh, it's, thank you for doing that because my life growing up was fantastic down at uh, Bronte. So, you know, I, I was born in uh, Paddington with the, uh, the the women's hospital when it was in Paddington. Mum's been in the place even to this day. So I think it's well over 60 years that she's been there. Yeah, Dad passed away about eight years ago, but... Growing up there was unreal, you know, we're only about five minutes from the beach and 
I remember coming home from school and me and my brother would jump on our skateboards and ride down Bronte Road with the surfboards under the arms and, and go out surfing out Bronte Reef. And we used to think that uh, Bronte Reef was like pipeline, you know, until you get a bit older and realise the, the wave at Bronte Reef isn't that good. But uh, it was always um, great going down. And, and the problem was, though, one thing I remember, and back in those days you'd get away with it, is you had to get back home. And I used, used to always have to be home before dark. So you had to be home before dark. But you'd be in the surf right to the end, as, as dark as it possibly could get, and then you'd have to bolt up and then get back up the hill to um, mum and dad's place. So what we'd do, because we had the skateboards, we'd hang onto the back of the bus, which would tow us with our boards on the skateboards back up the hill to mum's. And we used to make it just on dark. So we used to get in, but without having the uh, the tow from the bus, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it. So there were some uh, fun times growing up down there. And, you know, we started in the, in the nippers at about, I think, 1974 down at Bronny and mum and dad used to take us down there and came through the whole nipper movement and enjoyed that. And I used to do a fair bit of beach sprinting in those days and, and then progressed into the water events. And so that was always uh, great. And we'd stay there all day. We'd stay, go down for nippers and mum and dad would stay there and we'd then sit in, which we used to call Aussie Corner, near the cubes there at Bronny. And and then we'd go from uh, from that, there'd be a Sunday afternoon surf club drink. So Dad and Mum would go up there and we'd follow them and, and hang out and play and go surfing. And, you know, we, we used to be at the beach from 7 a.m. on a Sunday and probably go home at, you know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m. on a Sunday night. And that was every single week. And burnt to a crisp and going to – never forget going to school the next day and I'd always have the, the wetsuit, the red arms with the red suit, wetsuit mark and, and the nose was all red and – it was, um, yeah, some, some good times back in those days, the, the sort of mid-70s into the 80s. That is incredible hearing that because, it, you know, most of the boomers, the Gen Xs and some of the early Ys lived those lives where you would wait till the streetlights came on, you knew you had to get home, and if you didn't make it, mum and dad are standing at the door ready to send out the, you know, the, the cops to look for you or whatever, or they'd, you know, the wooden spoon would be waiting in those days, you know. So wonderful time of life when you could play in the streets, but getting on the back of the bus, that's that, that's a genius idea, mate. I, I love that. Imagine doing that today, going up Bronny Road on the back of a bus and everyone have their mobile phones out and uh, you'd be on the 10 o'clock news <laughs> or the 6 o'clock news on Channel 10 or whatever and uh, that would be the end of it. You'd probably be um, – well, actually, TikTok, you'd probably be world famous if you did it nowadays, but I'm not encouraging yeah, anyone to do it, of course. <laughs> it uh, made milk bars, fish and chips. You would have had all that lifestyle sitting in the back of the car with no, uh, no seatbelts because they didn't have them back in the 60s and early 70s, no rear seatbelts in them. You would have had memories of all of that, right? Yeah, I remember um, Dad's old Falcon had no seatbelts. We used to get in, just jump in and had the big long seats and, and in you go, off you'd, off you'd go. And, you know, no one thought about that in those days. And the milk bars were great. There was a milk bar down at Bronny Beach and used to play the pinball machines. And and then uh, there's another one up Charing Cross because we weren't far from Charing Cross and you'd be playing uh, all the different pinball machines. And I think Space Invaders came in in those days and, you know, you're playing Space Invaders and we used to ride our BMX bikes all through the back streets and actually have a game with a whole group of people we'd meet up and you'd play tips but it'd be on your bikes and you just have to pedal around these little back streets and back alleys and hide and, you know, 
move around and, you know, people be getting tipped and they're in and then they chase everyone and it was great. You know, backyard cricket, we used to play it. We were lucky we had a, a reasonably sized backyard and everyone had come around and, and, and played backyard cricket. A few broken windows that mum used to blow up about when someone had hit it a bit too hard and break a window, you know. But we lived next door to uh, St Catherine's Girls' School and that was quite interesting when we were younger because my brother and I used to jump the fence and uh, run in because they had a whole lot of boarders. So the boarders would be there on a weekend and we'd be running around and running a muck in the back and there used to be this massive tree you could climb up. And anyway, the the teachers there would then call the police because they'd see a couple of young blokes running around with the girls in, in the in the play, in the yard, you know. So we'd bolt. We, we knew we couldn't get back home and the police would intercept us. So as soon as we knew they would come, we'd climb up this tree and sit at the top of this tree and just watch the police walk around underneath the tree, walking around the trying to find us. And they had no idea where we were. We were just sitting up there until they went. We'd come down and scamper off home. But the police must have worked it out one day that where we actually lived. And as we were going back home, the police were already there knocking on mum's door and uh, <laughs> trying to find us and trying to stop us from jumping the fence and going into the school, mucking around with the girls. As any, I mean, we were probably about 13, 14, I suppose, at the time. So I'm pretty sure every uh, 13, 40 year old would have had the same idea. Red hot young blokes, mate, and nothing has changed in that regard. <laughs> hey, uh, sport, Hopper, you know, like uh, school sport, you mentioned cricket in the backyard. Obviously, um, you know, there's been some great Australian cricketers like Glenn McGrath and Ricky Ponting born out of backyard cricket, Gilly and all those guys. And uh, I guess, um, you know, that obviously you moved into Nippers, you mentioned earlier. Where did that all progress to through school? What was your probably your highlight in your school sport? Oh, look, school sport probably would have been cricket. I mean, I played for school. I played on the weekends as well. I remember one year I, I went through the entire year and I think my lowest score was 52. So I had a really good year and I think a lot of people were predicting that, you know, maybe I could go on and have a cricket career. And I, I think that was around 16. I was about that age then, I think, when I was, I was batting quite well. I was predominantly a batter, not a bowler. Um, and I enjoyed it. I played a few representative um, teams, Eastern Suburbs and and. I think it wasn't quite New South Wales at that stage. I can't remember now what it was, like a metropolitan representative team. And it was um, really enjoyable. But I, I played a lot of field hockey as well. Dad was uh, always played field hockey and he dragged me into that. And so summer was cricket, uh, also going to the beach. And then also the winter was hockey. And, and I suppose I gravitated a bit more to hockey because I found it, I was probably a bit better at it, I suppose, if I, uh, at hockey. And I was probably about 13, 14, and, and Dad said, oh, look, I think you should start playing, you know, they had about six grades uh, back then, first grade through to sixth grade. And, and Dad at this stage was in his 50s. He was still playing, I think it was fourth grade at that stage. And he got me starting to play the in, in fifth and sixth grade as a 14-year-old. So you're basically playing men, and, and in those days, fourth, uh, fifth, and sixth grade, they're, they're, they're a bit of hackers. They're a bit hackers, you know. They're not the the, the best of players, and it was a bit probably, um, you know, hard. But because I was so fast, and, and I think I picked up a lot of skills from that. And by the time I was seventeen, they had me. I was playing the only guy I think at, at Randwick that was playing in the junior comp, but also then backing up the afternoon, I was playing in second grade, and. The following year when I came out of the juniors, I went basically 
into into first grade. I think I, I played one game in second grade, and then I always wanted to play on the AstroTurf. And at that era, the AstroTurf started coming in. First grade were the only ones played on AstroTurf. Everyone else played on grass. And I just had this in my head. I wanted to play on AstroTurf. Anyway, I was a fullback, and one of the, uh, the the fullback we had at the time for first grade was in the New South Wales team. He went up to play for New South Wales. And so I got three weeks of playing first grade, and I remember the coach asking Dad, you know, are we going to put him into first grade? And I was only 17. And Dad said, no, no, he's too young. We're not, we don't, I don't want to play in, in first grade yet. Anyway, the coach talked him around, and I ended up getting a start. So I played uh, those three games, and I think – I got me out of the match of, I think, two out of the three of that couple of games to the point when the guy came back from New South Wales representative, the coach put him on the bench and left me in the side. And he got the shits with that naturally because I suppose if you're coming back from playing New South Wales, you expect to go straight back into your position. But by putting on the bench, I remember there was a massive blow up and he ended up just taking all. He goes, well, he left the club and went to another club. And um, and then I just stayed in first grade from then on, and which then led to to playing cricket uh, in the summer, and then and then the hockey in the in the winter. And but uh, it sort of changed when I got to uh, about nineteen twenty. I was trying to do both, but then I had to start working. So that's uh, when things sort of changed a little bit. Mate, that's uh, that's an incredible story of sport right up to your you know representation in, in hockey. It's pretty funny, mate. I um. I hear those stories and I think it sets in place um, where you've ended up in life in some ways because it teaches your team, the team environment and, and about excelling and all those sorts of things. And, you know, it uh, also takes me back to another question though. And at that age, you say you're in your, probably in your later teens now, what was your, your story with your driving experience? Did you pass your driving test first up or not? <laughs> Uh, I've got to geez. find some holes and chinks in the armour, mate. That's a, that's, a, that's a one to try and remember. I'd say I probably failed the first time, just on memory, trying to remember way back then. So I think I failed and then had to go for it the second time. I think I got it the second time. If that's uh, All right, well, if, if, if you're that's not alone there, mate. I think it was a few of us. They had to fail one in <laughs> ten or something. So I was the same as you. I got the, I got punted and went home with my tail between my legs and had yeah, to do it yeah, all again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what about your first, very first date as a young guy, young to late teenager probably or early twenties, growing up in in Bronte, and you talked about <laughs> jumping the fence over into the girls' <laughs> dorms. But what was your first first date? Do you remember it? Oh, first date. I think because I started work at, at the radio station 2GB and, and I think there was a – I had a, my first date from there as far as I can remember. And I, I remember when I look back now at the fashion and what we were wearing, it was like it'd be laughable <laughs> these days. I was probably that nervous. I was a quiet, shy kid. I didn't really say too much. And uh, I got the courage up to ask – this girl to go, uh, I think, I forget, I forget where we went. We went to a restaurant, but it would have been the city somewhere, I think. But it, it was, um, yeah, I don't know if it worked out too well. I probably didn't say too much. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it was it was probably the only, probably the first and last date with that girl. I don't think I got another one. 
Well, you can only try, mate. Hey, um, you mentioned 2GB now. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> a job there. I can imagine you uh, fronting up there with a mullet and uh, some stonewashed denims on and starting your first day at 2GB. What was, what was that like? And who, who, who was your first uh, um, announcer that you probably worked for or producer in those days? Oh, look, in those days, 2GB had a, you know, they, they went to number one. I think even today they're number one, but. I mean, I had uh, Mike Carlton was breakfast. Uh, John Laws was a, it was the uh, morning program. John Tingle was the afternoons, and the drive. There's a drive one. Can't think of his name now, but there was a pretty high. They won across the board, but I was predominantly working with Greg Hartley and Peter Peters. If anyone remembers, Greg Hartley was the ex uh, referee for for rugby league. He was a shame. And Silver was a former player for Manly. He was the, you know, the manly player then, and then went into the uh, into media. So they were commentating, and I, I was lucky enough to go out and work with them. And I'd sit between Greg and Peter and take down, a, you know, the tackle counts, penalty counts, uh, then show them, and then he tapped me, and I tapped Greg, and then, you know, when they wanted to talk, and I'd run around pre-game and and chase the interviews up, and I wouldn't do the interviews, but I'd have the headsets and the mics, and I'd grab the player they wanted, and I'd say oh, I've got such and such, and then they cross from the from the box and out at the ground and come down to the player, which was great because I got to know all the players. The players got to know me back in those days. I used to a funny story. I used to run out and have to get the man of the match at the end of the day, and the other guy that used to run out was with two two UE, which was Andrew Voss. Andrew Voss is now commentating on on Fox on Fox. We were running out. We used to have to. And I was lucky I could sprint those days. So I got him every time. And Ray Hadley was the caller for 2UE at the time. And I remember Peter and uh, Ray Hadley had to have a meeting and work out, we can't keep doing this. It's just ridiculous. We're, we're running up and down the sideline and bolting out and grabbing these players to get the first one to get the interview. And it was just a, a, a funny thing. I think it came to a head when... Greg Hartley commentated on the race between me and Andrew Voss going out to grab the uh, the player for the man of the match, and they they did it live on air and commentated. And I think that was the end for Ray Hadley to go. Well, mate, we can't do this anymore. It's just getting ridiculous. And uh, but it was fun times. Um, I was always going. I've never seen Ray since to um, to see if he remembered those days. I, I think he would. It's a, it was a, a funny time. Another quick one too was. Rex Mossett was commentating those days for TV. It could have been Channel 10. And I walked in and I had the media pass to come in the back. And for some reason, a, a kid asked for my autograph. He probably thought I was a player or someone else and whatever in those days. And so I'm signing this thing. And then next, you know, as kids do, they see one getting signed, so they all want to sign it. So I've got about, I reckon, 20, 30 people and I'm there signing autographs. Rex Mossop comes through. And he looks, and they just even just ignored him, and he just kept walking through. And I remember him upstairs because I had the two GB jacket on, and and uh, he went to Greg one day. He said, "Mate, what's this young bloke? He's down there getting all the autographs." And I'm walking through, and no one even knows, you know, raises an eyebrow. And uh, he, he was Rex was a little bit, you know, he, he was a bit put out, I think, by that. He was um, he had a little bit of an ego, Rex, but. Uh, he, uh, you know, it was all, all in good fun. And, and I remember when Greg and, and, and Peter would be commentating and 
uh, Peter would tell me to move back a bit because he'd get the shits with with uh, so, uh, Greg. So I'd move back a bit in the chair, and he'd just come through and punch him in the in the arm and give him a big cork in the arm, right in between while he's still trying to call the football game. You know, so he's in agony on one side trying to call the football game, and then other times he'd tell me that. Yeah, you know, normally he Zorba would tap me to, to tap Greg to, so Zorba could chime in and, and have a say. He would then just let him go. So you know how hard how hard it is to commentate a football game without a break, and he just let him go. And Greg kept looking across like, "Are you going to say something?" Like, and he'd have to keep talking, keep calling the game after and after and after. And, oh, geez, it was some uh, some funny times. And they used to put in those days there'd be little A four pieces of paper with stuff written on it and like a typewriter, the guy at the back would be putting it on a typewriter and they'd put blanks in between. So they'd be reading it off and then you'd come about three or, three or four pages just blanks and you see them just flicking through because they had to get the next one to know what to read. Pranks were played all the time. It was just uh, it was, it was fun times. I did that for about four or five years. Wow, mate, that, uh, that's incredible. I, I remember Rex Moss and Barry Ross used to have that controversy corner and that used to go just after the game. So that's probably where Rex was headed right after he saw you and was probably wondering what's going on. And that, that show, they used to get right into it. So uh, it's, a, it's a funny story. What a, what a start to life of those blokes and all those names. Like Andrew Voss went on to do some stuff on us in triathlon. He came up and came over to the Ironmans there for a few years doing the commentary and the docos and... And uh, obviously Hadley, like he's still the number one caller in uh, in rugby league and does the origin. So you know that's an incredible group of people. Well, you're blessed. I guess uh, right back then, mate, a star is born, as they say, when you're signing those autographs. Right, <laughs> 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 well, we better we better get onto the lifeguard stuff, I guess, because there's uh, there's a million layers of that anyway. But uh, mate, tell me, how did the lifeguard stuff kick off? Where did it where did it come into your head where you said <laughs> Bruce Hopkins, I'm going to be a lifeguard. Yeah, look, I mean, the lifeguard was never really on a radar, to be honest, when I was at uh, 2GB. And then I got into doing a lot of racing with the ocean skis. Uh, well, back then was the surf skis. And I was interested in the Ironman. Ironman was taken off. The, this is Ocean Ironman, like the Uncle Toby's and, and the Kellogg's Niche Grain. And, and I just sort of wanted to get involved with with that. I was always competitive and you know, it's great working at the football. And that sort of ended my cricket and hockey career when I was working for 2GB because it was a lot of weekend work. So the weekend work sort of uh, sort of hammered me a bit for, for working, uh, for, sorry, for um, competing. So I was lacking a lot of that competition side of things. And from there, I decided, okay, I'm going to leave 2GB and, and – get into competition and I need a job that I could train and get paid and keep fit and do the whole lot at, at once. And that's when one of the guys at the beach said, why don't you just try out as a bit of lifeguard? And I thought, oh, well, yeah, it's fair enough. I'll try out. Start off as a as a casual and then work my way through. And I always thought I'll just do five years. And once the five years is up, that I'll move on to something else. Because when I started, it was, a, it was always known as a job you did before you went and got a real job. Yeah, it was. That's true. It was. It was all the lifeguards here at Cronulla were the same. They they sort of did it as a, a casual while they're waiting either to get into airlines or even some of them became pilots and whatever. But then again, there's plenty down here at Cronulla like you. Like you, know, you have done a podcast on Johnny Lavers and and uh, there's John Wilkin down here and a few others have been doing it for I don't know, 30, 40 years like yourself. They're 
decades of it. It's just incredible. You know, it's um, interesting to know, though, you know, like uh, let, let's go into the everyday life on Bondi Beach, say the, what's a typical shift, you know, in comparison to what when you first started to now. Oh, look, when I first started, it was probably 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then there's another shift at 9 to 7 or 10 to 7 and that was pretty much uh, what it was like back in, in those days. But you used to work a lot of other, like seven days straight and you get, you know, two or three days off and it'd be on sort of a rotating roster. Whereas these days now it's it's longer, it's like a 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift, but the roster works really well because you only work probably two days in a row and then from there you get two days off or three days off and every two weeks you work three days but then you get three days off and so it's a lot better you work the, the longer hours when you're there but what happens is um you get the better time off and i think it's been working a lot a lot better recently all right so go back to when you first started there probably was you know one two three lifeguards on the beach in comparison to how many lifeguards on a busy day now in, in bondi well, I remember um, at Bronte and Tamarama, you'd have two on and then one would leave and you'd be on your own. At Tamarama, you'd be based on your own most of the day. People would come for lunch breaks. and But you'd always start, even Bondi, you'd start from 6 a.m. till 9 a.m. on your own at Bronte and, and Bondi. Uh, 9 o'clock, another guy would come on and, you know, you'd probably work with three at Bondi, maybe four throughout the day. And, and, and weekends, I remember working with two finishing between, say, six and seven at night, you still have thousands of people. I mean, the crowds haven't changed from back then to now and there's always been plenty of people around. So I remember just, you know, no, we didn't have the beach bike. So when I started, it was this little ATV used to have. That's all we had for a bike to get around the beach. You pretty much had to walk. Setting up and packing up was you had to walk it. You, you basically just dug back all the flags and signs away from the high tide mark so it wouldn't get taken overnight. And then just roll it back out in the morning. Just dig the holes again and, and put them back out. Totally different than now. You, you pack the whole beach up. It goes on a trailer. The trailer gets put back in the shed and, and you roll it out next morning and, and, and do that. So total different from when I first started. No jet skis back when I started either. So you know, a rescue board was all you had, uh, a rescue tube. And I remember plenty of times at Tamarama when the north swell had hit, you'd jump in grab a group of people with a tube, go across to, to Bronte because there's no way to come back to Tamarama with the way how strong the rip was. So you had to go with it. And the guys at Bronte would be paddling out. They'd have a board ready so you'd get – they'd grab them with the board and then you'd come back in, run back across uh, around the road, back down the goat track we used to call it, which used to be able to get down the cliff back to the beach. And from there, you'd, I'd just be watching more people going because there's no one at Tamarama at that stage. So when I'm around at Bronte with – rescuing people, you get back to Tamar, jump back in around, you go to Bronny again. So, you know, these days you never work on your own. You always got a minimum of two at Bronny and, and uh, Tamar and, and most of the time now you've got three people. So it's uh, pretty much, I tell the young blokes, it's a walk in the park now. But, you know, it's, at Bondi you've got six, five, five to six people, um, which for me it's a walk in the park now for that. But young blokes, you drop one and they, they can't they work with four and they get a bit uh, a bit nervous because at the end of the day, it's what you experience in it. It's not, you know, they've never experienced working with two or three people. Absolutely, mate. It's uh, it's funny though, times have changed, I guess, you know, litigation, safety, work health and safety, everything's different now. And there's, you know, there's management involved. 
So the changes, you know, just not being a simple, as we used to call them down here, hill, hillbilly lifeguard, you know, you just roll up and do your job. Now there's just there's training and education courses, just endless first aid that's on and on and on. I mean, what, um, just for the listeners, you know, what's the, probably the safest area in Bondi to swim and what's the probably the most dangerous area? Oh, I look at Bondi, it's predominantly down the north end is is the best Area, it's, it, it seems to miss a lot of the swell down there. You know, any north or east swell misses there. Yeah, predominantly Bondi faces south. So you sort of miss this. The southeast swell sort of misses down that end as well. So it's always pretty um, mellow. I mean, even on a big day, you can pretty much get out in that north corner or off the, the boat ramp down north. And then south is the is a lot, uh, <clears throat> a lot more dangerous. It was um, a lot more water moving. Uh, waves are bigger, and, and the way the beach is faces and shaped, you predominantly get a lot more stronger rips down the south end of the beach, pretty much in front of the where the skate park is now, which is pretty much off second ramp, which we now call um, it's been named Backpackers Rip. <laughs> and on that, mate, what would be probably your most memorable, I guess celebrity high-profile rescue that you've done in all the years, you know, being a, the lifeguard that's probably rescued more people than anyone in, in Australia. What's your memory of that? There's been a lot of rescues, but uh, I'm trying to think that a fame, I mean, there's plenty of famous ones that come down to the beach and, and walk along the beach, but there's not that many actually venture into the water. And I suppose the one that stands out, even though I, I didn't rescue him, it was the David Hasselhoff came down one time and, he came into the tower and we put a shirt on him and, and down the beach he went. And I remember walking on the beach and he, he, he's going on pretending like he's a, 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 like a Bondi lifeguard and he's got the tube and he's doing the slow-mo run with the blue lifeguard uniform on like as, as if he was back on Baywatch. And I'll never forget this, this young girl's jumped in, good-looking girl, and next thing you know, without telling anyone, he's off. He's run off, he's charged down, he's jumped in, he's trying to get this tube around this poor girl that – she wasn't in any trouble. It was just um, just a David Hasselhoff. She looked up and I don't know whether she's probably pretty young. So she probably wouldn't even known who he was uh, from the Baywatch days. So uh, it was quite funny watching him. And he he come back out. He struck back out and and um, he, he was a pretty good bloke. Yes, he had some um, good stories. He's pretty down to earth, and it was fun uh, just to watch him. You know, get along and jump in. Then he wanted to have a go on the jet ski and. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was a, a great one to have down. But, I mean, one of the guys did rescue, um, he was a muso. I can't remember his name now, but a couple of his kids were in the water and they needed to be rescued, so they had to rescue him. But I think most of the, the big personalities don't go near the water as much because they don't want to get caught uh, and have to be rescued. Yeah, they don't so want the embarrassment, hey? Yeah, it's more well, of everyone more knows of who the Hoffies, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows who the Hoffy is. I, I, I bet. I bet that young girl knew who he was. <laughs> but that's a big. That's a big call, matey. You know, look, all the old Uncle Toby's Iron Man guys all became friends with the, the the Baywash people. They went over and actually ran a show over there and and uh, ran an Iron Man competition. I think it was done in Waikiki, if I remember. So they all became lifelong friends out of that. And I remember Ricky Pallister talking about it when he came home from it. it was a great time. Speaking of, you know, celebrities and, and high-profile events, the, the old show Bondi Rescue, 
comes to mind straight away, especially talking to you. You know, what was the very first episode and how did that whole thing come about? Yeah, Bondi Rescue, is a, it's a funny one. It's, I remember we, we put on Ben Davies, who's the creator of Bondi Rescue. He's a local Bondi guy. He's grown up around Bondi. He always worked in TV, producing different TV shows. And anyway, one year he came to me and said, oh, look, can we, I might come on and try out as a lifeguard because I got, haven't got much on over summer and just pick up a bit of extra work. Anyway, so we, he tried out. We put him on. He worked that summer and, and, and even being a local, he said, geez, I didn't realise what you guys did down here as lifeguards. He said, there's so much that happens. And he said, I think there could be a TV show in what we do down here. And I think I laughed at him and said, oh, mate, how the hell would I know? And he said, leave it with me. So he came back and we, we sat down and planned out a few things, talked about it. The biggest hurdle I thought was getting it through council because we're employed by the council and they're pretty strict on what gets filmed and what doesn't get filmed. And I thought there's no way they're going to bring let cameras come in and film us doing our daily job. Anyway, we, they pitched it to them. We did a little pilot, um, five-minute pilot, and that went off to different networks and council agreed to it. And then the networks had a look and Channel 10 liked it. They said, oh, we'll just make it a, a one-hour special. That's all it was ever going to be it was a one-hour special. Because the previous year, Channel 10 did a, a bushfire series. And the year they did it, there's no bushfires. So they had no content. So they were saying, I remember the executives, the executives saying, well, what if we get no waves or we get no, no rescues, right? And I said, oh, look, and as Ben knew, he said, mate, there'll be plenty of content. Don't worry about that. So they said, oh, let's just do an hour special. Anyway, the, all the, we did the resuscitation of um, Takahiro, the Japanese, young Japanese guy, which was the first one that was captured from start to finish anywhere around the world because most of the time cameras come in when it's, you know, they're already going the ambulance or it's already been completed or halfway through and just happened that we were there. The cameras were there the, the whole time and they captured the whole lot from us running in, resuscitating him to take him to hospital and then he got a defibrillator put in um, in hospital. So it was a really good story along with all the rescues, the, the, you know, the, the surf, uh, surfboard gashes that we, everyone was getting. Uh, so there's a lot of content there, and then they've gone. Oh, look! I think there's a there could be more to this uh, than an hour special. We've got way too much footage. Let's make it into a, a an eight part series. And we said, oh, great! So they they did the eight part series for the first year, and it sort of got uh, rated quite well. And then um, then they went to thirteen episodes for a series. And by the time we got to the second third series, it just took off and. So there was no planning. We thought it'd last. Well, one, we thought it'd be now special, never hear of it again. And then uh, we got a couple of series out. We thought, oh, yeah, it might last three years and, you know, that'll be it because it's the same sort of stuff, you know. We're thinking, well, the rescues, there's rescues, there's, there's you know, that happens all the time. We get spinal injuries, we get resusses, resusses and, you know, and you get the weird characters that get around Bondi and turn up, which they're a good story, but... We thought, well, I mean, how much can people keep watching the same thing over and over? And anyway, it's um, it took off. Went then went it to about 140 countries. I think it's been in over the amount of years that it's been going. And we just filmed, uh, finished filming season 17. And 
I can't believe it's gone 17 years. And they've already said that they'll do another one next year. So it looks like we'll get that to uh, Series 18 and then see where we go from there, see if we can hit the big 20. That'd be nice, mate. <laughs> you look at the stats on, on the show, 17 series, six Logies for best show. The evolution of it is incredible. Even in its first year, 1.6 million viewers. Now it's, you know, it's 10 times that around the world. You know, it's it's run on stream, as you know, on various other areas. In fact, it's, um, someone mentioned it the other day that it's probably doing a lot better than even Drive to Survive and the F1 on Netflix. So it, it's just incredible. It's something you've described as so simple can evolve so quickly and then turn into all of that sort of thing, you know. And mate, it's it's just a credit. I guess it's a credit to the guys, uh, yourself, the producers, everyone involved in it. But you know, there's probably the other side of it too, mate. What you know, the show's produced extremely um, well with this. You know, the professionalism in it is incredible now. But in the early days, I guess there's trial and error. Were there any really significant bloopers or anything that ever went pear shaped? And uh, you know, maybe they should do a blooper series on the on the on the rescue guy. <laughs> yeah, well, funny you say that. It's, it's um, I mean, the early days. Obviously, we when we started filming, there's no GoPros back in those days. Whereas these days, everything you know, your bikes to the tower to the uh, walking up and down the stairs, the jet skis, all the boards have got GoPros on them now, so. They're filming constantly, no matter where we go. But back in the early days, we, um, you know, we only had the camera crews. We had two camera crews on the beach. They'd all be there from nine a.m. to seven p.m. and they they come in mid December, work through the end of Feb. Back in those days, they go to the end of March. So it was a good, you know, three three and a half months of of filming seven days a week. And I remember Brooke, the uh, used to have to have a water cameraman because there's the only way to capture us in the water. You need the camera. So he used to put his fins on when he thought a rescue was coming up and off he'd go. He'd be heading into the water and he'd be kicking out with his, with his camera and um, he'd sit there and watch and as we come out, we'd, we'd do the rescue and, and he'd be shooting it all. But sometimes he'd get there and a bit too quick and the people in trouble would grab hold of his camera to, to keep themselves up. So we'd be coming out on the board and, and the person would be hanging on his camera and he'd be trying to push him away because he couldn't, he couldn't get the shot because the person was basically on top of his camera. And yeah, I remember the production company going, well, mate, you're going to have to, um, you know, if someone's in trouble, you're going to have to hold them up. Don't worry about the shot, you know, because he was trying to push them away to get the shot. And, uh, you know, and, and, and other things that guys said, funny stuff. And I remember the the first couple of weeks, they used to have a, a, it was a girl in the ta- under the tunnel and she'd be taking in all the dialogue because they – they were obviously trial and error for them trying to film something like this as well. And I said to her, how's it all going? And I said, and she goes, oh, yes. She said, um, I've been listening to all the dialogue. She said, it's been very educational. And, and then I thought, oh, thinking about it, I thought, oh, yeah, I can imagine what these guys are talking about. Oh, forgetting that they're on, you know, on camera, they're mic'd up and, and things like that. So it was quite, quite funny. But they did do, when you spoke about blooper tapes, what they did do is the bloopers they put together in the first, say, I reckon, eight series, and they put a blooper reel together. We'd have a, a, an end of season and sit down and they'd play the blooper tape of all the funny things guys did, which obviously would never go to air, but we'd have the blooper tapes and, and sit there and look at it and laugh and different things people would say or 
funny faces they'd pull or someone would be picking their nose or, you know, it'd be something that, that would be um, quite funny that you forget that the cameras are rolling when you're there. Mate, who's uh, on that then? Bikes messing stuff up. Who would you think would be the worst actor amongst the boys but thinks they're really good at it? You know, Reedy, Reedy. Well, there's plenty of them, but, yeah, I think I'd go with Reedy. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was quite prominent oh. in the early days uh, down there. And uh, I remember he used to put his he, – he had uh, the blonde hair and he'd be putting the uh, the lemon. He'd be dripping the lemon in his hair trying to make it go blonder. <laughs> so he was uh, – Always lucky Botox wasn't around those days. <laughs> Mate, I've seen him. He, when he's out, into, he, got, he got into the triathlon there for a while and he'd go riding. He'd ride, we'd be in some town and he'd ride past the window and he'd just look straight in it the whole time looking at himself <laughs> riding his bike up the road, you know, nearly run into things. Anyway, that's another whole podcast in itself. <laughs> uh, Mate, so, <laughs> what, what, I guess we look at things like achievements and sport and you mentioned a few, but what do you think your greatest achievement so far in life has been, um, you know, in whatever you you think that would be in your category of being a sportsman, lifeguard, actor, you know, what do you think the best thing is so far? Oh, look, there'd be a few. It's hard to break it down, I suppose. But, you know, I think the big one for me, was, well, one was finishing um, the cool and go gold. I think that was a massive goal of mine. And I remember watching the movie and Guy Leach winning it back in the early 80s and, that was something that a race that everybody wanted to do and I eventually got to do that a few times. But the first time I did it and completed it, it was a, an achievement. Um, I was happy with that. Won a couple of Australian titles, world titles in, in the um, surf life saving. So that was a, that was always a, a good achievement. But I think running the lifeguard service and, and having the team and, and a TV show, like for people watching it looks quite easy, but Behind the scenes, it's not that easy, you know. You, you one, you're running a a, a team and a, and a and a job, which is highly stressful as well. Because it's not like us; we can't rock up like to an office and make a mistake, and you go, "I'll just fix that one up later." You know, potentially we make a mistake, someone dies. You know, so we've got to be on the ball the whole time. So then, and on top of that, put a, a an international TV show they're filming as well. You know, and and. Certain people, you know, people can get egos, they can get, you know, different things that happen. There's jealousy and stuff. And you've got to manage all that as well as, you know, in, in an environment. So I think we've done quite well with that over the years. I mean, it's not an easy environment to, to do it. And predominantly it's all male. I mean, we have had a few females come through. But as you know, in, in, in any sport as well, there's, there's disagreements and, and things that happen with uh, different committees and different, you know, um, in, in sport, but I think um, we've done quite well and kept everyone, you know, ego to a to a good level. And you get cut down pretty quick if you think you're too good than than anyone else. And I think that's been very good. And and everyone's you know good mates. And even to today, that people will go away together and travel together and you know go do events. Like Reedy goes off and does events, and a lot of guys go with him. And it's you know there's not many workplaces where you work together, you hang out together after work, you go away together, you compete together. You know, it's, it's quite unique when you sit back and, and really analyse it and, and, and have a look. And, and the funny thing with me, it's I've always been quite quiet and, and I try and be level-headed. 
And I think that's probably helped in a way because when I came through as a kid, I'd always end up the captain of the cricket team or the hockey team or things like that. And I didn't even plan to be in the role I'm in now as, you know, running a lifeguard service. But it just seemed to happen. And I was the most quiet person back there, you know, in cricket and, and hockey and I always wondered why would they put me captain or how they say a word. One coach pulled me aside one day and he said, well, the reason is, he said, you know what you're doing in that sport and when you do say something, he said, the whole team stops and listens. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week at the Beach Shack is uh, Chase. He's back in. He's enjoying the Beach Shack. And uh, welcome, Chase. Yeah, thank you for having me. Must be doing something right to come back. <laughs> Mate, uh, <laughs> you did a trip last year to uh, over to WA. So tell us a bit about that. It was, it, I saw some of your videos and photos and it looked uh, magnificent. Yeah, I got to. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones that was able to explore our country and look around Australia. I've owned a, owned a troopy car for a while now, and that was kind of the plan since I left school to pack up with my best mate, Zach, also known as Polar Bear, and uh, head around Australia and surf the whole coastline. I, I uh, was heading straight down to South Oz and, and cut out this whole of Victoria area for the start. And once we got there, we were just blessed with waves. Like the rugged coastline down in South Australia is just like something never seen before. And, and nothing like anywhere else in Australia. And to to be able to go down there and just pull up at any beach or, or any cliff and look down and see a wave and and be worried about whether or not to go out to the sharks was uh, probably the best thing to make the decision because you don't have to think, oh, there's too many people or is it going to be worth it? But um, yeah, it was always the, the thing on the back of the mind was the sharks hanging down in South Oz. And um, we were pretty lu- lucky. We got uh, we got lucky. Met a guy, Jeff, uh, Jeff Schmucker down there. He's born and bred South Australia. Lived there forever. He's a shark fisherman, and and uh, he's a really good surfer for for that area. Him and his son have, have made a pretty big statement for their names down in there, and and they surf pretty big waves and and uh, do what they do, like not many other people do from down there. Obviously, it's pretty rural, and they're not getting much um, recognition or doing anything, but. He, yeah, like I said, he's a, he's a fisherman and uh, he, he fishes for sharks and, and fish and and he pretty much comforted us and said, look, boys, I, uh, I've i never actually seen a shark while surfing around here. My whole 50 years of surfing, I've never seen a shark while surfing. I catch them every day and, and that's my job. So that kind of ticked us off the list and, and his knowledge in the area was just like nothing I've ever seen before and the skills he's learned. It's, it's such a crazy thing that these guys down here in South Australia that you meet, they just have learn everything off the back of their hand, like from, from the day they're born to jet skis get introduced. He's not taking it to Yamaha to get service. So every, every single one of his skills is self-taught and passing that knowledge on to me and, and my mate before we started our big trip was like a blessing, like what saved us from multiple accidents and um, got us pretty much across the Nullarbor. Otherwise, my wheels and my trailer would have fallen off if he didn't give us a good inspection. Now, as you said, it's pretty remote around those areas and, so how was, I mean, the listeners from overseas, they're all petrified of sharks. I think we've got a million sharks and everything gets eaten every day and things like that. So how intimidating was it? I mean, you're used to surfing around Bronte and Bondi and there's a thousand people out surfing, but suddenly then you're in areas where you're potentially, you're the only guys out there. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, after being comforted with, with Jeff's knowledge of, of no sharks in South Oz, it kind of felt a bit better for us. And then we got a big scare. We, we actually decided let, let's pin it straight up to northwest of WA after this South Oz trip. And, and it was a 24-hour continuous drive to get from the middle of Australia up to this top left corner just because all we wanted to do was surf this swell in the afternoon. We just wanted to get the back end of it. And um, so we did that big drive and took it on and we made it all the way up to Kalbarri and um, got into the Arvo surf. And, and that next, I think, that following week was when the, the sharks started coming into fear again. We were surfing out at this outer reef on the jet ski, which is kilometres out to sea and surfing these waves when no one's around and just perfection. And, and you'd be thinking, like, last thing on our mind was sharks. You've got this blue water. You can see the bottom and it's just magical. And, and Zach just goes, oh, we'll go down the beach a bit and, and, uh, and see, if, see if there's anything down there. So I, I jump off the tow rope on the back of the ski, which is 10 metres off the back, and paddle up onto the back of the sled. And as I paddle on the back of the sled, we're both looking off the back. This massive shark comes up and just eats the tow rope that I was just holding. So there's this big uh-huh. metal part on the end of the tow rope. Comes up, eats the whole tow rope, goes straight down into the deep water again, and we couldn't see it again. So that was like back to halfway through our trip. We're like, oh, we just made it to WA. Now, now the sharks are real and... And every day we went fishing and, and spear fishing and whatever we did, there was just sharks everywhere. It's like we we couldn't we couldn't get a catch away. Like every time we caught a fish or something, we'd bring it up to the side of the ski and the, the sharks are so smart. As soon as you turn your engines off, they all come around and, and come snooping around the ski doing circles, waiting to see where the where the fish is. And as soon as you bring it up, they're just all chasing it. And it's like playing cat, cat and mouse trying to get your fish out so you can have dinner. And these sharks are trying to eat their dinner too. But um, yeah, it's definitely a, a scary part over in that that part of the country in Western Australia for sharks. And what about when the engine was running? They they wouldn't come up. They'd stay away. Yeah, when the engine was running, it was they they wouldn't surface. They would probably always be under there. They'd just hear it and kind of probably just hang underneath us. And we never got to actually see them. But as soon as you turned it off, it obviously got them real intrigued. And that was just their their time to come up on the surface and see what's going on and see what they got for dinner. So we were pretty much giving sharks free feeds for half of our trip with, with what we wanted for dinner. <laughs> and what else? You, you, you continued on from there. You went for, what, about three, four months? Yeah, I had three months. We, um, we then made our way back back down the coastline and we, we caught, it, like, this area, like, in Cowberry that we stationed ourselves at for a while. It's, uh, it was a crazy area. There's just everyone there is just brought up on fish and it's a massive fishing village. Like, all they do is just go out and catch and eat what they catch and very sustainable living and so rural it's very hot up there with great waves around too so the guys that live here are very lucky and myself and Zach were lucky to get a hold of a big yellowfin tuna that is still probably the best best catch that that we've both gotten and and bring it back to the boat ramp and all the all the locals were pretty frothing on it and and one of them actually come up to us and he was a lobster a, a, a cray fisherman he goes, oh yeah, if you if you got any spare, then or, or want to trade out because obviously they're they're pretty old school. Everything's about trading. Like we'll give you this and 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 we'll take that. So we traded them out pretty much a quarter of or or even half of our tuna, and they just gave us filled us up with lobsters. We had lobsters, and we're sitting in a caravan park going, look at this. We're sitting here with tuna sashimi and and having lobsters cooking on the on the hot grill, like living our best life over in there, just sitting in a caravan park on the side of a deserty, dirty highway. And that experience must be something you can take away. And like, there's, there's, would you recommend it to all young blacks to get over there and, and experience something like that? 
Yeah, look, I couldn't recommend it enough. I um, I wish I could do it more often and and get over there every time I can. The like I said, the life skills you can pick up just just from doing the trip, just getting out of your comfort zone for for majority of your time and doing things that you wouldn't normally get to do around here, is uh is something that everyone should get to do while they're younger or older. Even if you haven't had the chance to do it while you're younger, plenty of families on the road. There's plenty of people doing it. If you're thinking about doing it, it's definitely worth doing because never heard of anyone regretting it, especially um over in Western Australia, it's just magical and, and down in South Australia as well when the when the time dry and it's not too cold. Well, mate, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's worth going and doing another trip like that. You'll probably think about that soon. Maybe this winter, you're thinking about doing another one? Yeah, look, I was um, I was definitely planning on doing it, something maybe not as long, obviously. got still got work to do and that leave I've saved up to, to be able to go on a few months. doesn't come around every year, but... I uh, definitely want to plan to do something, maybe not for as long, maybe a month or so, just to get back down there and, and get a taste of it again, just to make me content for another year ahead, just to get my dose of waves and, and fish before it comes into another 12 months. So I definitely feel like I'll do that again. And, and um, yeah, we got actually, there was another part of that trip that, that we got really lucky with. And, and it was a wave that we got told about over in Indonesia. And, uh, we were up at Exmouth and it was about an eight hour drive to get down to Perth and book a flight over to Jakarta. And then at Jakarta, it was a, a drive, about a five hour drive to the bottom. And, and then you get in this boat across to an island where you're hiring a fishing boat. So we're, we're sitting on this fishing boat. We, we made the decision to, to do it and book the flights and get there for that next day. And where here we are the next day on, on the end of a wharf with a fishing boat filled with rice and two guys. We had one the captain and one the chef. And, they took us across on this old timber boat with these outrafters to make sure it didn't tip and, and got over there and the waves over there and, and the fishing over there was just amazing again. So that was another part of our trip. There was a, a sick addition surfing in crocodile, there were saltwater crocodiles all around the island and there was crocodile infested island with waves that were breaking on coral reefs and, and then you had to catch your fish for dinner so you could have fish and rice and pancakes for breakfast. So we, uh, we got to experience pretty much every type of lifestyle and, in that three months and going from living in Australia to crystal blue waters with sharks, then going across the channel to Indonesia and surfing croc infested waters with coral reef and, and everything in between was just such a good experience. And yeah, something we'll take with us forever and be able to tell everyone about like, like do it now and tell the kids about one day. Yeah. Great experiences and something that, yeah, you can tell you that you know, kids later on down the track and, you're always going to have those stories, great stories in uh, surviving sharks and surviving crocodiles and getting some perfect waves. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's definitely not the uh, most comfortable life to live if, if you want to live long. But look, it's uh, definitely fun, definitely worth it. And uh, obviously getting put outside the comfort zone, you just get to feel more comfortable around everything that's, that's around and especially that with sharks as well. Coming back to Sydney, it's just not really on the mind like it has been in the past. All right, Chase, mate, thanks for coming in and uh, telling your shark stories, your croc stories. It's uh, very entertaining. Nah, thanks for having me, Hope. I'm glad I'm here to tell them. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode because part two will be out next week. So make sure you tune in, subscribe, so you will know when all the episodes are out. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes.
That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.